I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but if you spend any time hanging around places that emphasize education or the arts, you'll find a lot of things that are named for people. At universities, you'll find that practically every building is named for some rich alum who at some point gave a ton of money to the school. At our city's Museum of Natural Science, we have the Cockrell Butterfly Center and the Wortham Giant Screen Theater and the Burke Baker Planetarium. Our city's symphony orchestra plays at Jones Hall. It sponsors an annual competition for young musicians named for the philanthropist I'm a Hog. And even if you're not able to give enough money to get a building or a competition named after you, smaller donations to the symphony will ensure that your name winds up printed in every concert program. And of course, the more you give, the better recognition you get for giving. If you give at one level, you can be part of the conductor's circle gold. A little more money will make you part of the conductor's circle platinum or even diamond level. And the bigger the donation, the larger the font size will be displaying your name. Now, I don't want to pick on giving to promote education or the arts. I love education and the arts. And I'm glad people sponsor our city symphony. But what I want you to see with all of this is that in our culture, generosity is deeply tied to the idea of public recognition. Nonprofits say, if you give money to us, we will publicly honor you by name. And donors say, I'll give, but I want my name prominently displayed throughout your operation. That's how generosity works in our culture. And really, I think that's how deeds that our society considers to be good deeds work too, right? You do good deeds, hoping the local news will pick up on it, so you get some public recognition, right? Well, today what we're going to see in the Bible is a very different ethic when it comes to doing good deeds. Today we're going to continue our study in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as we begin in Matthew chapter 6. And in this chapter we're going to find that Jesus says, when believers perform good deeds, especially good deeds of a spiritual nature, we must take care so as not to do these deeds in such a way that is motivated by getting applause from other people. We're to do these things to glorify the Lord alone. And that's what we'll see today in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Now, these are some very famous verses, and we're not going to cover all these verses today. We're going to leave the Lord's Prayer and the verses right around it for next time. But what we are going to do today is look at four points about the very first and the very last verses in this section that relate to what Jesus calls practicing your righteousness. And we'll talk about what that phrase means in a minute. But first today we're going to see that Jesus gives a principle and a warning about practicing your righteousness. And then Jesus is going to apply this principle and warning in three specific spiritual examples that reflect practices that were very important in first century Judaism. In almsgiving, in fasting, and in prayer. And that's what we're going to see today. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me give you some context. We're in the middle of the main part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus began this major section by declaring himself to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus says that the entire ancient relationship between God and Israel ultimately points to him. The prophets point to him. 
The law points to him. He is the whole thing's fulfillment and culmination and completion. And as such, Jesus is also the law's authoritative interpreter. Now, these are some hugely significant claims, biblically speaking. And these claims have been vindicated by Jesus' sinlessly perfect life, by his resurrection from the dead in power. And immediately after Jesus says these things about himself, he begins to set the record straight about a number of commands from the Old Testament law which had been disastrously misinterpreted by the popular religious teachers of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and scribes had been considered very holy and righteous by most people in ancient Judea and Galilee. They were religious teachers to be admired. But Jesus knows better. And he says the Pharisees and scribes are not holy or righteous. Instead, he says in chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the Pharisees and scribes fall far short of God's standard of righteousness, which Jesus disclosed to us in Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But instead of urging people to emulate the moral perfection of God, the Pharisees and scribes instead misled the Jews into thinking that immoral and unrighteous living was okay. And we saw that in chapter 5, didn't we? As Jesus reveals that because of the Pharisees and scribes, the Jews wrongly thought that God was okay with sinful anger and lust and easy divorce and dishonesty and revenge and hatred. But in fact, God was not okay with any of those things. The Pharisees misled their followers into evil living. And through most of chapter 5, Jesus has been correcting their false interpretation of the law. And as he has done this, Jesus has issued new and clearer instruction to his disciples, who soon would live no longer under the old covenant and the old law. They would live under the new covenant that Jesus would inaugurate by his death. And Jesus' disciples then and now enjoyed under this new covenant a new and superior relationship to God than what Israel enjoyed in the Old Testament. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Spirit to live out God's righteous demands as taught by Jesus and His apostles. We have imputed to us the moral perfection of Christ so that we meet this seemingly impossible standard, not because God makes us sinlessly perfect, but because we stand in the moral perfection of Christ. And that's what we saw in chapter 5. But now as we begin in chapter 6, Jesus is no longer talking about the false interpretations of the law taught by the Pharisees and the scribes. But that doesn't mean that he's done criticizing them. Only now what Jesus is going to do is not criticize what they teach. He's going to address how they live, how they conduct themselves publicly, putting on a show of holiness and spirituality when in fact they are distant from the righteousness of God. And as Jesus exposes the unrighteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes once more, he is going to legislate a new ethic for his disciples then and now. An ethic for how we conduct ourselves when we render acts of spiritual worship or do good deeds in the name of Christ. And we find this ethic in our first point this morning in which Jesus establishes this general principle and a warning for how believers practice 
these sorts of good deeds which he calls practicing our righteousness. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here, I think the first thing we have to do is understand this phrase, practicing your righteousness. What is Jesus talking about? Well, when we talk about righteousness, usually we use this word in the way the Apostle Paul used it, as referring to a status or a position before God. Everyone is either positionally unrighteous or righteous. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then Paul lists a whole bunch of sins that deserve God's wrath. Sin is unrighteous. It produces guilt and condemnation. And we all begin as unrighteous and guilty before God. But Romans 3 tells us that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So while everyone begins unrighteous in God's sight, through repentant faith in Christ, by God's grace, those who believe are declared to be righteous. We are declared to be not guilty by God. And that's how Paul talks about righteousness. And that's how Protestants usually talk about righteousness too. But here in Matthew 6, we find this same word, righteousness. Yet this time, the word is not talking about our status or our position before God. See, although the Holy Spirit inspired the entire New Testament, He worked through different authors who had different writing styles and different vocabularies. Now you need to know, all of the authors of the New Testament tell us the same story. They all proclaim the same faith. They all point us to the same concepts. But sometimes they describe these same concepts differently. They have their own vocabularies. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen that when Jesus talks about righteousness, he does not use this word in exactly the same way that Paul does. When Jesus talks about righteousness here, he isn't just talking about our position of being not guilty before God. Instead, he's talking about the fact that God has made demands on how we live and he's talking about whether our lives reflect God's demands or not. Same word, he's, he's using it in a slightly different way. And here in chapter 6, when Jesus speaks of practicing righteousness, that's what he's talking about. How believers conduct ourselves before the watching world. How we live in response to God's righteous demand for our lives, which we saw in chapter 5, was a demand that believers not behave like the unbelieving world around us that we not find the most minimally compliant way to outwardly obey just the letter of the Scripture while inwardly rebelling against obedience. No! We saw in chapter 5 that God wants in believers a sincere obedience and an allegiance to Christ outwardly and inwardly. In fact, we saw in the verse immediately before this one that what God calls believers to is to live in a way that reflects God's own moral perfection. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Do our lives reflect God's demands? Now, I need to say this very clearly, friends, and I want you to hear me on this. We need the righteousness of Christ before we are able to practice righteousness on this earth. 
We have to come to Christ in faith before we can receive the Spirit. And only then we can live in obedience to Christ. But the Sermon on the Mount is about believers, and it is for believers. And here Jesus is saying, believers, you've got to live in light of what I've just revealed to you in chapter 5. And specifically what Jesus is saying here is this, believer, as you try to live in light of the fact that God is holy and has called you to reflect his holiness, beware, constantly be on your guard. Why? Because there is a temptation afoot. And this temptation comes from the fact that as you live and as you seek to live righteously, there are other people around who are watching you. Now, at this point, many people draw an incorrect conclusion about what Jesus is warning against. They say, oh, well, Jesus is saying, don't practice our righteousness in any sort of a public or visible way. And so these folks conclude that our Christian lives are to be lived in secret, that our Christian service is to be rendered in secret so that nobody else ever sees it. But I would tell you that's not exactly what Jesus says here. Jesus is not calling us to an intensely private, secret piety that nobody else ever knows about. And we know that because Jesus said the very opposite of that in chapter 5, verse 14, where he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Believing, friend, you are to allow your good works, your righteous conduct, to shine openly before other people so that they'll see you and they'll see that, oh, you're a believer. That's why you're different. And they will associate your different lifestyle with Christ and his gospel and his Father. And they will, God willing, come to faith through your witness. So Jesus here is not giving us this blanket statement saying your faith must be intensely private and never manifested publicly. All right. Well, what is Jesus warning about then in Matthew 6.1? What he's warning against is a temptation that comes from the fact that people are watching you. That because people are watching, you may be tempted to practice your righteousness to do what seems to be obedient to the Father. Not because of the demands of the Father. Not because you want to reflect the fact that your Father is holy. But instead, you may be tempted to practice the very deeds you ought to be doing, but you want to do them so as to be seen by others. That is, you do them to impress the people who are watching you. To make them think that you are so holy and pious and wonderful that's the temptation Jesus is warning about, the temptation related to motive. So the issue in this passage then is not simply how you conduct yourself in public, but why you do the things you do. And what Jesus says is if you practice righteousness to glorify the Father, there is a glorious reward that awaits you for that. A reward that not only comes from the Father, but that is with the Father. And if we could get Matthew 6, 1 back up on the screen, I'd point you to the fact that the last words of this uh, verse here, um, from your Father, in Greek, um, th this word from is para, and in this construction usually means with and not from. 
Okay, so what this isn't just saying your father's going to reward you. This is saying there's a reward that awaits you with your father in the new creation in the end. That's, that's what he's talking about. But if you practice what otherwise would be righteousness so as to glorify yourself before those who are watching, Jesus says you forfeit whatever reward you would have otherwise had from God for that conduct. And that is the principle and the warning Jesus establishes here. We are to reflect God's moral perfection and holiness in our lives because God is perfect and holy. And because, believing friends, we are God's children, and so we are to act like our Father. But we are not to act righteous in the pursuit of the approval of people. Now, this can be a very difficult principle to apply generally, and I think it's even harder to apply in our own day and time because we live in a culture that's all about self-promotion, right? Right? Uh, we're told that's how you've got to get ahead if you want to make it in this world. You've got to promote yourself. Especially these days in which social media is such a dominant force in life and commerce. And social media is all about displaying yourself. Putting your image out there and saying, this is what I'm all about. Hoping to attract followers who you want to influence, who you want to impress. I think the temptation to trade on your faith to promote yourself is immense today. Now, you might say, well, I think most people out there don't like Christianity today, so I don't see that there's any benefit to publicly claiming to be a Christian. But, oh, friends, I would say that while it's true that this world is indeed opposed to Christianity, in many ways evangelical Christianity has become a world unto itself. We have our own celebrities, our own big events, our own influencers and commodities, our own market, as it were. And tapping into this can be very lucrative for many people. You say, well, that's all interesting, but I don't have the ambition to become a celebrity Christian. Fine. But is it not true that you would rather your friends and your family members and your social networks look up to you as a godly, holy person? We all want to feel special and godly, right? We want to be admired. And so, friends, this temptation to self-promotion is profoundly real. And I think Jesus' warning here is difficult and painful for us if we let it sink in because it invites us to examine how we behave and why we do what we do by giving us this important warning. And friends, this warning is important because we don't want our labors that we claim to do in the name of the Lord to ultimately be in vain, do we? Even if we hit it big. Even if we cash in, even if all our friends admire us as being the most godly person they know, that may satiate our fleshly desire for attention for a few years, maybe even a few decades. But what is that in comparison to the eternal rewards that could have been ours had we simply chosen to live to glorify Christ rather than to glorify ourselves? Believing friends, make no mistake. How we live in this world has eternal consequences for us. We are to desire and pursue eternal rewards, and we are to shun those things that would forfeit those rewards. So we need to listen to Jesus' warning here, and we need to let it evaluate how we conduct ourselves before others and how we reflect our spirituality in public. Now what Jesus is going to do next is he is going to specifically apply this principle to three different righteous acts that were considered extremely virtuous in first century Judaism. Almsgiving, fasting, and prayer. These three acts were considered so important that 
in the Jewish literature of the day, they're often treated together as sort of like the ultimate expressions of righteousness. In fact, a generation after Jesus ascended into heaven, when the temple was destroyed and Judaism could no longer practice animal sacrifices, Judaism rebuilt itself around these very three practices. So these are really important examples for Jesus' audience, and I think these are going to illustrate the principle he just taught us really well. So let's look now at these examples. We begin with the first example, and this is our second point. As Jesus speaks about a particular spiritual practice, which he identifies in verse 2, he says, thus, when you give to the needy. Now, the Greek word here translated give to the needy is closely related to the word for mercy. And showing mercy to the poor through generosity was something that God told the ancient Israelites to do. Deuteronomy 15, God said, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. In fact, God made specific provisions for the poor in Leviticus 19. Farmers were told to leave some of their produce in the field so that the poor could come through later and gather it up and have something to live off of. If you know your Bible well, you'll know that's a big part of the story of the book of Ruth. God wanted his people to be kind to the poor. And understand, this was revolutionary in the Bronze Age. Back then, there was no Social Security. There was no Medicare. There was no Medicaid. In every other culture back then, if you were poor, you starved, and nobody cared about it. But God cared, and God provided for the poor through his people. And the Israelites understood that generosity to the poor was a hallmark of the righteous. Psalm 112 says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And so giving to the poor became a major practice within first century Judaism. But this good and holy practice became a breeding ground for self-promotion and hypocrisy. Matthew 6, 2, Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Jesus says this practice of giving to the poor is an area in which people may appear to do what is good on the surface, but which they do for the wrong reason. And Jesus calls the people who abuse this practice hypocrites. A hypocrite's a word that people use all the time today, right? But what's interesting is where this word comes from. In Jesus' day, the word hypocrite was most often used to speak about actors in the Greek theater, which was a common form of entertainment in the Roman world. And Greek theater involved the use of masks. Actors would put on masks, concealing their real faces, and these masks would display various emotions that their characters had. And Jesus says here, this is what many people, including many Pharisees and scribes and others, this is what they were doing when they gave to the poor. They were putting on a performance. They were acting. They were putting on a mask, disguising what was really in their hearts making themselves look righteous and concerned about the things of God when what they really wanted was self-promotion. And one way these individuals promoted themselves, Jesus says, is they gave money to the poor as a trumpet was blown. 
Now, usually when we read these verses, we imagine a rich person, probably a Pharisee, walking around on the street, followed by his own private trumpeter, right? And the trumpeter would make a loud noise so everybody would look as the Pharisee gave money to a poor person. And that may be the idea. But over the last 2,000 years, there have been no records found of anyone actually doing this in ancient Judaism. Now, that doesn't mean that's not how this played out. But some scholars have come up with another way to understand this verse. We know that during times of drought, the Israelites would fast and pray. And these fasts would begin with people blowing trumpets in the streets. And the Pharisees taught at such times, giving money to the poor would increase the likelihood that God would send rain and listen to the fast. And so some commentators think that what Jesus is saying here is there are people who would wait until a time of national crisis, a time of national need, a time of public desperation. They would wait until the trumpet was blown in the streets when the Israelites were most fervently praying about their crisis. And at this most desperate moment, then here comes the hypocrite and he flashes his pocketbook and he gives money to people in the streets. And everyone who was desperate for the drought to end would see this and go up and shake the hypocrite's hand and say, thank you, thank you, I know God will soon end the drought because of your godliness. And the hypocrite left feeling self-righteous. He gave not because he cared about the poor, not because he wanted to alleviate suffering or because he loved the Lord. He gave to draw attention to himself, to improve his reputation. Likewise, we know that those who gave much money to the poor, they were publicly recognized in synagogue. They were given a seat among the rabbis, sort of like the way people who give generously to the arts today are publicly recognized. But again, those who would give only when the trumpet is blown, those who give to secure the recognition of men, Jesus says they are guilty of false giving. They are guilty of hypocrisy, of play acting. I think worse than all of that is the fact that Jesus uses a verb here to describe what the hypocrites seek, which we would normally translate to glorify. Back in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus used this same verb to describe what would happen when God's people perform good deeds. The Father's glorified. But these hypocrites want to revel in glorying themselves with the glory that rightly only belongs to God when good deeds are done. They are usurping God's glory. What is the consequence? Jesus says in verse 2, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. This word truly is the word amen or amen. It's a very solemn declaration Jesus makes here. These people have received their reward. What reward did they get? Well, they got the glory and the applause of the people that they wanted to impress. And Jesus says that's all they're ever going to get. He uses a term here that was written uh, on bills when they were paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus says that's God's view about those who give just to impress people. Their applause is payment in full for their deed. They will not get one scintilla of reward from the Father for that sort of giving. But instead of this disgusting, self-promoting hypocrisy, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. 
And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, you've got to see three things here. First, Jesus' disciples are still to give to the needy. We may not be Israelites under the old law, but we're still to be generous. Jesus doesn't say if you give to the poor. He says when. Now, the when here in verse 3 is implied from some grammatical features in the Greek. But this when is explicit at the beginning of verse 2 when Jesus said to his followers, when you give to the needy. In fact, in verse 2, Jesus doesn't just say when. The word usually means whenever. And he puts it in combination with a verbal structure that indicates this ought to be happening regularly. So Jesus in these verses is signaling that generosity to the poor is still an act of spiritual service that the Lord expects his people to perform frequently. And we saw this in chapter 5, did we not? Chapter started with Jesus pronouncing blessings on believers. And one of those blessings was upon the merciful. And we said one way to understand that is believers are to be people who give generously to those in need. Later in chapter 5, we saw that believers are to even be generous to our enemies when they're in need. And if that's true, how much more should we be generous to anybody in need? So it should be no surprise to us here that we are to give to the poor. In fact, we find this instruction not only here, but elsewhere in the New Testament. James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 1 Timothy 6.18, speaking to the rich, which frankly, compared to most of the world, we're all rich, right? Paul says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. In fact, in Matthew 10 and 25, Jesus will speak about generosity to the poor as a defining characteristic of his people. So the first thing we learn here is that believers are still to be generous to the poor. But as we are generous to the poor, the second thing we need to know is that we must still beware of this temptation to the hypocrisy Jesus is warning about. Instead of giving in a public way that may cause us to stumble to this temptation, Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's a metaphor. He's saying, draw so little attention to what you're doing when you give that it's like one hand doesn't even know what the other hand is up to. Now, obviously, it's impossible for your hands to not know what they're doing, right? This is a picture. But the idea is this. Go out of your way to not draw attention to your giving. Do it as secretively as possible. Why? Because then it's between you and God only. It can't possibly be done for human applause if it's done like that. You are protecting yourself against this temptation to self-promote. Now, maybe you hear this and you say, well... Self-promotion, that doesn't, that doesn't stumble me. I'm not that crass. I can give without having to worry about anybody looking at me. But the truth is, friends, we can deceive ourselves, can we not? Sometimes we don't really know what our true motives are. But by doing our giving as secretly as possible, we can guard ourselves from evil motives that we may not even be aware of. Now, of course, absolute secrecy is impossible. Usually because the person that you're giving money to at least knows about the fact that you gave. Sometimes you're in a situation where the only opportunity to give does involve other people being around to see. Or your gift gets recorded by some accountant. But as much as you can, do your giving privately and secretly to guard yourself against this temptation Jesus is warning about. And as you do that, Jesus tells us a third thing here. 
There is a reward to be had for being generous to the poor for the right reasons. The Father rewards those who righteously and generously give to the poor. Maybe that reward will be experienced to some degree in this life. Certainly it will be experienced in the world to come. We don't know exactly what eternal rewards entail, but we can surmise that they're glorious, that they're meaningful, and that in the end, friends, you'd rather have them than forfeit them. And for those reasons, friends, we should pursue eternal rewards. And to do that, we are to do good deeds of generosity, according to this verse, in the name of Jesus, for the glory of God alone. Such deeds lead to rewards in the end. So we see that we should be generous, but we must guard our hearts against the temptation to self-glorification. That's Jesus' first example. We come now to Jesus' second example and our third point. And here I want to skip ahead to the very end of our passage as Jesus identifies another righteous practice that was being abused in his day. Matthew 6, 16. Jesus says, and when you fast. Now these days when people talk about fasting, they're usually talking about dieting. But fasting was not part of a diet plan in ancient Israel. It was an expression of great humility. Confessing that we need more than just to satiate our bodily urges to live. Fasting declared our utter dependence on God by going without what our bodies crave. Now, the Old Testament law required Israel to fast on the annual Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 23:27. On that day, Israelites abstained from food, drink, sex, washing, anointing themselves with oil, or putting on their sandals. And as time went by, other national fasts were developed as well. After the first temple was destroyed, Zechariah 7 and 8 tell us the Israelites fasted for four days every year on the anniversary. By the first century, another national fast had been added to the calendar, remembering the incident with the golden calf. In addition to these scheduled fasts, there were also sometimes spontaneous national fasts. Israel fasted before going to war, or when there was a moment of imminent national danger, when there was a concern of great national importance, when there was a need for national repentance or just to lament the dead in war. And in addition to national fasts, sometimes individuals fasted. Almost all of the Old Testament examples of a person fasting have to do with moments of great personal distress or anxiety, and very often these distresses are related to sin. So fasting was a huge part of Judaism generally. And by the first century, it had become an even bigger part of Judaism. It seems that the Pharisees had decided they should fast every Monday and Thursday as an expression of their righteousness. And if you say, well, how do we know about that? Well, in Luke 18, Jesus tells us about a Pharisee and a tax collector who prayed. You remember that? And one of the things the Pharisee said to God is, I'm so righteous because I fast twice a week. So fasting was a big deal in first century Judaism. And it had a solemn and an ancient meaning and background. But Jesus says what had originally been a profound expression of humility to God had become an opportunity for hypocrisy. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Again, we've got hypocrites, probably some Pharisees and scribes, and they saw fasting as another way to make themselves look righteous and holy. And Jesus says what they would do is they would disfigure their faces. 
You say, what's that mean? We don't know exactly. Probably it means they covered their faces with ash. Because in the Old Testament, fasting often related to repentance. And in the Old Testament, when people repented, they would put on sackcloth and put ashes on their head. And these hypocrites, in Jesus' day, basically put this stuff on like a costume. Because they were actors, after all. The costume of repentance. Although they were not repentant in their hearts. And they would go around with a sad, dirty face so that everyone who saw them would say, oh, look, he's fasting. He's so righteous and holy. His soul must be so vexed by sin. But in truth, this was a perversion of fasting. Because fasting is about humbling yourself before God, saying what I really need most is you. But these hypocrites weren't humbling themselves or declaring their dependence on God. They were glorifying themselves. And Jesus is not amused by this. Again, verse 16, he says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Whatever rewards these folks would have had if they had fasted with true motives were forfeited. The applause of men is the only commendation they will receive. But instead of using fasting as a way to drum up public sympathy and make yourself look holy, Jesus says this in verse 17, But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Again, the word when in verse 17 is implied from the grammar. But back at the start of verse 16, when Jesus introduced this topic, he again did so by using the Greek word that means whenever in combination with a verbal structure that denotes regularity. And so again, the idea is Jesus expects that fasting is something his disciples will still do. Now this idea of fasting is very controversial in many Christian circles today. Because although we read a lot about fasting in the Old Testament, the New Testament is almost silent on the practice altogether. We know that Jesus fasted before he was tempted in the wilderness. And we can assume that Jesus would have obeyed the command to fast on the Day of Atonement every year. But otherwise, we have no evidence that Jesus fasted at any other time. We'll see in Matthew 9 that, in fact, Jesus' disciples uh, did not fast, and it was viewed as controversial in their day. Now, Paul, after his conversion in Acts 9, did fast, probably in repentance for his previous opposition to Christ. And only twice elsewhere in the book of Acts do we see believers fasting, both times connected to Paul's first missionary journey. But other than that, we find virtually nothing else on the subject in the whole New Testament. A statement is made in 1 Corinthians 7 about married couples fasting from sex for the purposes of prayer. And there are a handful of other references about fasting in the New Testament, but frankly, most of them are textually uncertain and are very unlikely to have been part of the original text of the New Testament. And other than that, there's nothing. The epistles make no mention of fasting. They don't command it. They don't say when it's appropriate to do. And so because very little is said on this subject, many people say, is this still something Christians should practice? Meanwhile, other groups, often relying on the more textually uncertain references about fasting in the New Testament and looking to the Old Testament, say, oh, no, 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 fasting is a vital spiritual discipline that enhances the power and effectiveness of our prayer. So that's the controversy. How should we think about fasting today? I think the answer is there's still a place to, for fasting in the Christian life because of Jesus' use of the word whenever here and from the two examples in Acts. 
But based on the available evidence, I would add this. Number one, there is no justification to say that fasting is ever required. Since we are no longer under the Old Testament calendar, which mandated a set time for fasting. So fasting, when it's done, is to be a free will activity, which means that it should not be scheduled or mandated, say, by a church. Say, okay, but when should I fast? Well, based on what we do see in the Bible, fasting seems mainly to be a response to disasters, sin, or a desperate need. And when such times are encountered, then I think we can fast to desperately cry out to God, saying to God, I am totally dependent on you. But when we do that, again, we must see it primarily as a statement of humility, not as a way to say, well, I'm trying to enhance the power of my prayer, or that through this I can manipulate God into doing my will. So when it's appropriate to fast, and if you're medically able to do so, then I'd say do it. But Jesus says when you fast... Don't do anything to draw public attention to it. Don't walk around with a sad face. Or don't endlessly complain about how hungry you are, right? Instead, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face. Now, those aren't the sorts of things Jews did when they were fasting. 2 Samuel 12 tells us that's what they did when they ended their fast. They washed themselves to clean up, and they anointed themselves with oil to feel refreshed. So what Jesus says here is, instead of calling attention to your fast, make it look like you're doing the opposite of fasting so you don't draw attention to yourself. Now, does that mean it's wrong to tell other believers, I need you to fast with me or pray with me, something big is going on in my life? I don't think so. Again, this whole section is about motive. If you really think your motive is an act of humility and you're seeking God's help, I don't think it's wrong to ask for help about that. But if in your heart of hearts you say, I want to tell people I'm fasting so they look at me a little differently, a little more righteously, friends, that is what Jesus is warning about here. And the idea is this, friends. Don't trade on acts of righteousness for personal glory or reputation enhancement. And to reduce that temptation, Jesus generally tells us, don't give any outward indication when you fast. So there is zero chance you're doing it to garner public attention. But while you won't get public attention if you follow Jesus' directive here, you know who will pay attention to what you're doing? God will. Verse 18, he says, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Just because nobody on earth knows you're fasting in a desperate moment, that doesn't mean God doesn't know. If your stomach is empty but otherwise you seem normal and happy, friends, God still knows what's going on in your heart and why you're fasting. And in truth, God is the only one who really needs to know anyway. Because fasting says, I need you more than anything else on earth, God. And friends, when, when God sees that, he responds. Maybe your need will be met in this life. Maybe it won't. But God will certainly address it favorably in eternity. So that's Jesus' second example concerning fasting. Come now to Jesus' last example and our last point. And here we're going to turn to the heart of our passage because most of Matthew 6, 1 to 18, is really about probably the most important spiritual practice in our lives, which is prayer. Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, and when you pray. Jesus will say a lot about prayer from verse 5 to 15. Now today we're only going to consider what Jesus has to say about the danger of drawing public attention to our prayers. Next time we'll talk about what he says about the content of our prayers. But let's talk about prayer. 
Prayer is the act of speaking with God. And the Old Testament contains a lot about prayer. The prayers of people like Abraham, Moses, Hannah, Elijah, Daniel, David, Nehemiah. And in these prayers we see things, valuable lessons about intercession and persistence and thanksgiving and confession and praise and many other things. And there are lots of other people and their prayers are recorded in the Old Testament too. The Old Testament holds prayer in very high esteem, right? But Judaism in the first century had a different approach to prayer. Its prayers were highly standardized. Prayers were to be prayed at a set time for set reasons, and the prayers were very clearly specific and set forth. Every day in the morning and in the evening, the Jews were to recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Four times a day, the Jews were to recite a list of prayers called the 18 benedictions. Anytime they ate more than an olive, they were to pray at the beginning and end of a meal, and their prayers had to be different depending on what the food was that they were eating. Anytime they saw mountains, hills, deserts, or any body of water, they saw an earthquake, lightning, or thunder, they received good news or bad news, they entered or left town, they built a home, bought new cooking utensils, or got to the end of a Sabbath, they had to recite different prayers depending on the occasion. And although these prayers were set forth in standard formulas, the rabbis also said you can't just recite it from memory. You've got to ad-lib a little bit for it to work. You can say one thing about first century Judaism. At least they prayed a lot, unlike many Christians today who I fear are often prayerless. But while there was a lot of prayer offered in Judaism, Jesus also saw that prayer was another place where hypocrisy could flourish. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Here Jesus specifies two places where the hypocrites love to pray. In the synagogues where they could stand before the congregation and look important and spiritual. And they love to pray at the street corners. This word refers to the largest and most important roads in a city. Remember at that time everybody was on foot. You weren't in your car. And as you walked around on foot at various points in the day, you would hear the trumpets from the temple and know it was time to pray. And at that moment, invariably, there would be a hypocrite standing on the street corner ready to put on a show with his flowery prayers so that everybody saw and heard them. And Jesus says the hypocrite loves to pray like that when all eyes are on him. And in saying that, I think Jesus is also making another point. These hypocrites don't like to pray at other times when people aren't looking at them. But what does Jesus think about this kind of prayer that craves public attention? Verse 5, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. These, applause are about getting the, these prayers are about getting the applause of men, and that's all they'll get. They won't be answered by heaven. But instead of the flowery, hypocritical prayer designed to make the speaker look holy, Jesus says this in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. The old King James talked about praying in a closet. But this word really just means any interior room with no doors or windows. The idea is to offer prayers in a setting away from the eyes of onlookers. To entreat the Father privately. Now, this verse is often taken to forbid any prayer that someone else could overhear, including congregational prayer or public prayer. And we might 
draw that conclusion if this is the only thing the New Testament ever said about prayer. But it isn't. In just four more verses, Jesus gives us the most famous example of prayer in the Bible. And how does he start? Our Father. It's a collective prayer, right? It's a public prayer. And Jesus prayed with his disciples many times. And the early church often prayed together, according to the book of Acts. 1 Timothy 2 commands congregational prayer. And elsewhere in the Bible, we find many examples of godly public prayer, including Daniel, who prayed right in front of an open window, knowing people were spying on him. So again, we should not conclude here that Jesus means to forbid public or congregational prayer. He means to forbid prayers that are about gaining the applause of men, that are not really about speaking with God, but which are calculated to make you look holy and impressive. And Jesus says, if you're concerned about that temptation, pray privately when you won't have a human audience that might, that might stumble you like this. Because when you pray privately, you know what? The Father's with you anyway, because he's omnipresent, and he is the only audience that matters. And when you pray with the desire to honor him, Jesus says in verse 6, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Maybe your prayer will be granted in this world, maybe not, but certainly a prayer life marked by sincere devotion to the Father will be rewarded in the world to come. So pray with that as your motive, and that's Jesus' third example. So let's conclude. We are to avoid putting on displays of personal righteousness calculated to make us look holy. Now, it might shock us that people would want to trade on their holiness to look impressive before believers, but it happens all the time. This is an easy temptation to fall into. And we can do this in other ways too, right? We can evangelize with impure motives. We can admonish other people with selfish motives. We can sing worship songs with selfish motives. We can teach with selfish motives. We can fellowship with selfish motives. We can confess our sin to make ourselves look holy and not really do business with God. And yes, we can do this in prayer and fasting and almsgiving. In fact, I remember one of the first times I ever prayed in public was to impress some girl who was visiting church with me that week. I've done this, traded on righteousness to look holy, and if you're honest, you probably have too. And honestly, if you've been around Christian circles for very long, you know you've seen other people do this, right? Sometimes it's very obvious. There's a reason we moved the prayer meeting from this church out of the Sunday worship service and onto Wednesday night, because sometimes we'd have visitors show up who wish they were the ones up front speaking, and they'd take over the prayer meeting to be seen, and it wasn't seemly. Friends, our hearts are fallen. And yes, in Christ they've been remade. But the flesh craves attention. We want applause. And sometimes we seek this through religious acts. But, you know, we can do this in even other ways. I know some folks who a few years ago built a really nice house. And when you visited their house, one of the highlights of the tour was you got to see their prayer closet. Because they wanted you to know that they took this passage so seriously they built a prayer closet in their mansion. But wait. Isn't that the very sort of thing this passage is designed to stop? Showing off your righteousness so other people walk away saying, wow, how holy these folks must be. It's so easy to fall into this, isn't it? Because we're fallen and weak. We so desperately need God's grace. But thankfully, believing, friends, we have forgiveness through the death of Christ. And yet as we live, we are to pursue righteousness. There is a time and place to do good works in public and point people to the Lord but very frequently, friends, it's best for us to pursue spiritual acts of devotion in private to prevent us from falling into this temptation Jesus warns us about. 
Because, friends, our lives must reflect the truth of Psalm 115, verse 1, that says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory.